In your Bibles, if you would, turn to Lamentations chapter 4 as we continue in our series in the book of Lamentations. We are continuing in Lamentations chapter 4. Last week, we looked at how the gold has grown dim, at how uh, the sin of the people of God uh, in Judah and Jerusalem has uh, brought upon the punishment and just judgment of God. And, and so we're continuing uh, this morning in Lamentations chapter 4, verses 12 through 22, as we see uh, how God, uh, through the person and work of Jesus Christ, who gives us hope that he can heal and use our brokenness because of our sin. And so if you would, follow along with me as I read Lamentations chapter 4, verses 12 through 22. The kings of the earth do not believe, did not believe, nor any of the inhabitants of the world, that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. This was for the sins of her prophets and the inequities of her priests, who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. They wandered blind through the streets. They were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. Away, unclean, people cried at them. Away, away, do not touch. So they became fugitives and wanderers. People said among the, na the nations, they shall stay with us no longer. The Lord himself has scattered them. He will regard them no more. No honor was shown to the priest, no favor to the elders. Our eyes failed, ever watching vainly for help. In our watching, we watched for a nation which could not save. They dogged our steps so that we could not walk in our streets. Our end drew near, our days were numbered, our end had come. Our pursuers were swifter than the eagles in the heavens. They chased us on the mountain. They lay in wait for us in the wilderness. The breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, was captured in their pits, of whom we said, under his shadow we shall live among the nations. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uz. But to you also the cup shall pass. You shall become drunk and strip yourself bare. The punishment of your inequity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. But your inequity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish. He will uncover your sins. Let us pray. Father, I come before you this morning and, and pray that you would use the words of my mouth this day as I preach your word to strengthen us, to humble us, but to exalt, most of all, your son, Jesus Christ. And so, Father, may we receive your words in humility. May we have a desire to trust in you, to depend on you, to find our hope only in your son, Jesus Christ. It is in his name we pray. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 through 9, the Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians concerning his trials and afflictions that he experienced as he lived his life for Christ. He wrote, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, 
of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. In our series in the book of Lamentations, the, we have seen how the prophet Jeremiah and the people of Judah had received uh, the sentence of death. The sentence of death concerning their nation, the sentence of death concerning their society, the sentence of death concerning their religious way of life, and the sentence of death upon their leaders and the people. They had been afflicted by the hand of God. They were burdened and broken by their sins. They were despairing of the destruction of the temple and the city and the people. For they had received from God's hand just punishment for their sins. So what were they to do? What are we to do when we're faced with the same things that the Apostle Paul described or we see here in the book of Lamentations? How, how do we recover from our sin and brokenness? The answer we saw in our series here in Lamentations in chapter 3 is that we hope in God whose mercies are renewed every morning. The God who brings calamity is also the God who brings hope and life. We saw some of these glimmers of, of this hope and life in, in verse 11 of chapter 4, where he says, The Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger, and he kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. The, the hope is in the fact that when God brings judgment, he also brings with it salvation, and he brought that in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He poured out his judgment and wrath upon Christ. He took our sin uh, upon him, and, and through Christ's death, we received salvation. But we're going to see further glimmers of hope in verses 21 and 22. But before we're able to see those glimmers of hope, we first must continue to encounter the horrific effects of sin. And this uh, horrific effects of sin can be seen in the brokenness of spiritual leadership among the people. <coughs> then we must encounter the depravity of man as seen in our trust of princes and of men instead of the creator and sustainer of the universe. And finally, in our text, we're going to see how God gives hope to the people in the midst of their devastation, in the midst of their brokenness, in the midst of their affliction. We'll encounter not only the power of God in judgment, but the power of God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist. And so first in our text, we're going to see the sins of spiritual leadership that destroys lives. One of the, one of the great effects of sin, uh, especially among leaders in, in the church, uh, and, and in the case uh, of this text, uh, among uh, uh, the people of Judah in the temple, is that it destroys lives. When, when leaders sin, their, the effects of their sin is often that it destroys the lives of people. And this was to include uh, 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 the temple, the city, and the nation. 
And so look at verse 12. Verse 12 here, it says, The kings of the earth do not believe, nor any of the inhabitants of the world, that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. And so this is, uh, this is kind of uh, hyperbole uh, in the sense that, uh, uh, that the point Jeremiah is getting across is because of circumstances, past history, uh, that, that it came to seem that no one could go against Jerusalem and, uh, and take, uh, uh, and, and, and uh, even if they seized the city, they weren't able to conquer it based on past history. And, and, and so here Jeremiah is just getting at the fact that because of that, uh, the kings uh, of the earth uh, didn't think that Jerusalem uh, could be taken. And so this included the kings of Judah uh, and its leaders. Uh, that the kings of Judah, uh, uh, probably uh, starting with Hezekiah, who uh, was king during the fact when Sennacherib came and uh, with the Assyrians and sieged Jerusalem and then left, and uh, 150,000 of the Assyrian army was destroyed, and so uh, by God, and so they thought that there's no way that Jerusalem. Could be taken because we serve the living God. We serve uh, the creator of the universe. God is on our side. And, and so one of the sins of the leaders here was that they boasted that God would never allow Zion to be destroyed. And so basically their sin was one of pride. And it wasn't so much that they were trusting in God and his power as much as they were trusting in the fact that they were the people of God and, and, and they were in the city. And so uh, God did what no leader of a nation, especially their own nation, could believe, would believe could be done. In other words, that God, uh, that God withdrew his protecting hand from the temple, the city, and the nation. They thought there was no way, no way we could be destroyed. Now, maybe the northern kingdom, right, it was destroyed, and it was destroyed of its idol worship, but, but they thought, we have the temple. We have the ark. We have God's presence here uh, in the temple in the midst of Jerusalem. And so they thought, no matter what, no matter what, how they lived, no matter what they did, that God would not withdraw their hand from them. And so that was, a, that was pride. That was spiritual pride. And so the sin of, of their leaders was the spiritual pride thinking that there's no way God was going to allow Jerusalem to be destroyed. But God did destroy the temple. He destroyed the city and, and killed many of the people and they were taken off into exile because of their sin. And so whether they knew it or not, God's wrath upon their sin is the best explanation uh, for what had happened. And, and we see this in the, in the next verse of why God did this. Why did God destroy? Why did he withdraw his hand of protection from, from the temple and the city and the nation? And we see that in verse 13. This was for the sins of her prophets and the inequity of her priests who said, said in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. And we're going to see later that it wasn't only prophet and priest, but it was also because of the sins of the king that God withdrew his hand. But here he's talking about uh, spiritual leaders. He's talking about the prophets 
and priests that because of their sin, uh, because of their, they shed innocent blood, the blood of the righteous in the midst of Jerusalem, that God withdrew their hand. And, and so why did God uh, destroy the temple uh, and level the city and punish his people? Uh, because they behaved in a way that made them guilty of shedding innocent blood. They, here they're being, it's not that they physically took a knife or a sword uh, and went and killed someone themselves, but because of their teaching, because of their behavior, uh, that innocent people died. And, and so they were guilty, held guilty for that. And one of the things they did is that they did not preach the word of God. The prophets uh, did not preach the word of God, uh, except a few of them like Jeremiah. In fact, if you turn back to Lamentations chapter 2, verse 14, Jeremiah has already given us a picture of this. In verse 14, he says, Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your inequity to restore your fortunes, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. Not only did they not teach the word of God, but they taught false and misleading uh, visions and, and things about God. And, and, and so uh, that's why in Jeremiah, it, it uh, confirms the words of Lamentations 2 in Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 31. Uh, there the prophet says, The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule at their direction. My people love to have it so, but what will you do when the end comes? And so the prophets and the priests uh, of God failed to preach the word of God, and it left the people starving uh, for the, the nourishing word of God. But not only did they uh, fail to preach the word of God, they shed the innocent blood of the prophets. Now, again, it may not they themselves took uh, a sword or a knife and killed them, uh, but they certainly encouraged the, the kings and the leaders of Jerusalem to kill the prophets. In Jeremiah 26 uh, is, is a... a a chapter about the prophet Jeremiah uh, and the fact that they wanted to kill him, but they didn't end up not killing him. But they did kill uh, a, a prophet, the king Jer one of the kings, can't pronounce his name, but one of the kings, uh, uh, had, had uh, some people go down to Egypt and kidnap one of the prophets who preached against them, bring him back to Jerusalem and had him killed uh, there. And, and, and so they killed... Uh, some of the prophets, that was the prophet Uriah uh, that was killed in Jeremiah 26, verses 20 through 23, talks about that. And, and then in Ezekiel chapter 22, it talks about how the prophets and priests, the spiritual leaders, that they shed innocent blood in the midst of Jerusalem. And so God here was judging them, uh, the spiritual leaders, because one of their sin was that they actually encouraged uh, the killing of prophets, and innocent people. Thirdly, thirdly, the, the reason that they were being judged uh, and one of their sins uh, of these prophets and priests is that they failed to warn the people about God's coming judgment upon their sin. Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, preached this coming judgment. He warned the people and other prophets, other men who claimed to be prophets, said, no, that's not going to happen. They, they failed to warn the people about God's coming judgment. And in Ezekiel, uh, we have 
where God says, uh, using the terminology of a watchman, if you're a watchman on the wall and trouble is coming and you don't warn people, their blood is on you. And this is what happened, that these prophets failed to warn the people of God's coming judgment and therefore they bore the blood guilt uh, of those people. And so they behaved in a way that made them guilty of shedding innocent blood. And what was the result of that? We see the result of that in verses 14 through 16. Because of their sins, in verse 13, it says in 14, they wandered blind through the streets. They were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. Away, unclean, people cried to them. Away, away, do not touch. So they became fugitives and wanderers. People set among the nations, they shall stay with us no longer. The Lord himself has scattered them. He will guard them no more. No honor was shown to the priests, no favor to the elders. And what we see here is that because of their sin and the brokenness of the spiritual leaders, uh, that that sin and that moral bankruptcy is seen, uh, or that uh, the brokenness is seen in the fact that they had become morally bankrupt. They had become morally bankrupt. In other words, they had become morally unclean, just like lepers. Now, if you're a leper, what were you to do? You were to cry out if you got near a person, unclean, unclean, right? So that they know of the danger coming their way. And this is what the leaders, the spiritual leaders of, of Judah had become. They had become moral lepers. And why? Because just like leprosy in the ancient world had deadly consequences for other people that the sins the the sins of spiritual leaders have deadly consequences for people for their souls and, and, and so these blood covered blinded unclean persons these spiritual lepers they could find no place of refuge they could find no place of worship no one wanted them everyone uh, every nation turned from them they, they turned from God. They turned against their own people. And now God was turning against them. So that the Lord disapproved of them and he brought judgment upon them. The Lord scattered them uh, among the nations. He regarded them no more. He had turned his face and his blessing away from them. And they saw and came to find out despite their false teaching... Uh, despite their uh, false visions, that there was no escape of God's judgment because of the blood that was on their hands. That was then, but today, what about spiritual leaders today? There's, there's a lot of people out there portraying themselves as spiritual leaders in and outside of the church, and God will judge them for their sins because their false teaching and, and their sins of, uh, of desire for to fulfill their own flesh and comfort has deadly consequences for people. I'll just give one example uh, that we see, especially among what we call televangelists, right? We're all familiar with televangelists, and nothing's usually said about tele good about televangelists, right? Uh, and when, what I mean by televangelists is people who are get on TV and they're always asking you for money. Send this hundred bucks and we'll give you a prayer cloth, right? Or send this hundred bucks and God will bless you. And, and, and so 
A lot of that has deadly consequences. It has deadly consequences because the people who they tend to reach most are older people on limited income. And so they end up taking their income, and these people have trouble making ends meet. And, and that's just a financial deadly uh, result. What about spiritually as they lead people astray? And so how is it important uh, that we have spiritual leaders, that we have pastors and elders and teachers who are faithful to teach the word of God, who are faithful to warn you about God's coming judgment. Now, that's not popular today, right, to speak of God's wrath or his coming judgment. But I would be amiss. I would be sinning if I stood up here Sunday after Sunday and didn't remind you of God's judgment upon sin. To remind you that, that you need to turn away from your sin. You need to repent of your sin and turn to God. If you're a Christian, that's what your life is about, is a life of repentance, of repenting of your sin and trusting every day in the finished work of Jesus Christ. It is finished. He paid the price, and therefore there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And therefore God has called us to be holy. He has not called us to live in, in a life of sin and unrighteousness. And so, uh, and, and should I turn away from that, uh, it's important for the church uh, to recognize that and to confront that because the sin of spiritual leaders has deadly consequences. But secondly, in our text, besides the sin of spiritual leaders and their brokenness, we see the sin and brokenness of vain hopes that lead a people, that lead us to turn away from God. And so in verses 17 through 23, we're going to encounter three vain hopes that the people had uh, at this time that also we tend to have uh, if we're not careful. In verse 17, it says, Our eyes failed, ever watching vainly for help. In our watching, we watched for a nation which could not save. What is Jeremiah talking about here? What he's talking about is that instead of looking to God, to protect them and trusting in God for their salvation politically uh, against the Babylonian army. They trusted in other nations. They looked to other nations around them. And one of those nations they looked to uh, was Egypt. They looked for Egypt to save them. And in vain they looked for Egypt uh, to save them. In vain they looked for help and that help never came. And, and so instead of uh, depending upon God, they trusted in uh, other nations. Jeremiah 37, verses 6 through 10, puts it this way. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Thus shall you say to the king of Judah, who sent you to me to inquire of me, Behold, Pharaoh's army that came to help you is about to return to Egypt, to its own land. And the Chaldeans shall come back and fight against this city. They shall capture it and burn it with fire. Thus says the Lord, do not deceive yourselves, saying, The Chaldeans will surely go away from us, for they will not go away. For even if you should defeat the whole army of Chaldeans who are fighting against you, and the remained of them only wounded men, every man in his tent, they would rise up and burn the city with fire. And so in, trust, in trusting in Egypt, they turned from trusting in God, and God here called them to trust in him 
uh, and not trust in nations. Why? Because it's God who raises up and who tears down nations. Romans 12, 1 tells, uh, 13, 1 tells us it's that God ordains all authority in this world. Daniel 2, 20 through 21 puts it this way. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. And if it's God who sets up kings and tears them down, why would you look, why would we look, why would they even look to any other nation and trust in nations instead of God? So their vain hope, their first vain hope was they put trust in earthly kingdoms. Secondly, their vain hope was they, they had a hope that they would escape because they were the people of God, that they would escape calamitous events. Look at verses 18 through 19 that, that describes the fact that they could not. They dogged our steps so that we could not walk in our streets. Our end drew near. Our days were numbered. Our end had come. Our pursuers were swifter than the eagles in the heavens. They chased us on the mountains. They lie in wait for us in the wilderness. And, and, and the prophet writes this as if uh, there's a surprise there that the, all this happened. Why? Because they had this hope that there was this invulnerability uh, to being God's people. Not only that, more importantly, uh, because they had the temple uh, in the city of Jerusalem and the temple was where God's presence dwelt that there's no way that the temple could be destroyed. In fact, they felt like, the Jews felt like in the temple is the place where heaven and earth came together, and that's why God dwelled there, and so they thought they would escape all these events of the world that was happening around them, the Babylonian army conquering all these city states, that the end would never come for them, but it did. In fact, it came quickly. They pursued them, and they were able uh, to get away. And, and, uh, and sometimes, as Christians, sometimes uh, we get the feeling that we're, we're going to escape calamity. We're going to escape affliction and sorrow uh, or death. But, but we can't. We live in this world. And sometimes these things come on quickly whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, that, that you can't escape them. They come quick, just like the, the hurricane fire in Maui, right, that came on so quickly, and, and many have perished, uh, that often uh, things like that come quickly for us in the world. And if we put our hope in that, that it won't touch us, then we're not putting our hope in Jesus Christ. We're not putting our hope in God the Father. That God, that God, that we will suffer in this world. We live in a fallen world that is broken, and we will suffer because of sin and death in this world. We'll suffer as Christians because of persecution. We're not free from suffering because we follow Christ. Philippians 1.29, a verse I've often quote concerning uh, suffering as Christians says this for it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake and so a vain hope 
The second vain hope is a hope in escaping calamity. Thirdly, their third vain hope uh, was hope in political leaders. Look, look at uh, verse 19 or 20 here. It says, The breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, was captured in their pits, of whom we said, Under his shadow we shall live among the nations. And, and so in Israel, they not only had prophets who preached the word of God, priests who meditated the law, uh, the sacrificial system between God and man, but they had kings who God anointed uh, to be also leaders and not only political leaders, but spiritual leaders. And, and they had placed, uh, the, the nation of Judah had placed their hope in their king. They had placed their hope in a son of David, King Zedekiah. And that's, that's what he's getting at here by these terms, the breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed. That's the king. Uh, and we know uh, historically that King Zedekiah, once the, uh, the Babylonians breached the wall, that he escaped and fled, and they captured him. Uh, and uh, they, they killed all his children before him and then uh, gouged out his eyes and took him into exile. And, and so uh, a vain hope is trusting in political leaders. They, they saw... Uh, the king, the, the son of David, as their very life breath. And, uh, and so they use this terminology that they lived under the shadow of his wings. And so they trusted in him and, and, and they trusted in, in these alliances that the king made with like Egypt. But the king, God appointed kings to be servants. And instead of being servants, uh, they served themselves and tried to aggrandize themselves. And, and so the king here, he failed his people in spiritual leadership. He failed his people in political leadership as a servant of God. And he re rebelled against God. God. God had told them through the prophet Jeremiah to, to turn themselves over to the Babylonians and, and to trust uh, in them. Instead, they rebelled against the king of Babylon, thus rebelling against the word of God. And so they had a vain hope in their political leaders. And, and I would just say to us today, when, when will we learn the futility of merely political solutions to spiritual problems? Far too many of us as Christians put too much hope in our political leaders. And when we do that, what we're saying about our faith it, 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 what do we say about our faith when we're more confident of our political positions and our political leaders when, than we are of Christ and his kingdom? And, and if we're not careful, if we're not careful uh, to focus on Christ and his kingdom, we'll let our politics we'll become an idol, we'll let it become an idolatrous substitute religion with a fundamentalist zeal, just like the Israelites did here concerning the temple in the city of Jerusalem, or as they, at the time of Jeremiah, but they also did that at the time of Jesus. What's in the 60 AD, they rebelled against Rome, and it led to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And, and so we got to be careful. While we can be involved as Christians in the political process, and we should, uh, we don't want to put our hope in a political process, we don't want to put our hope in political leaders. Our hope should be in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You see, when we forget Christ 
and his kingdom, we forget that sin corrupts every individual, it corrupts every culture, it corrupts every political system, and it corrupts political uh, leaders. And so people, dear friends, I, I say to you today, political solutions will not be our salvation. And so let it not become your false god. It's Jonathan Lehman, a, a, a political uh, theologian who, uh, who uh, writes a lot about uh, how Christians uh, can relate uh, to politics in this nation. He says this, as Christians, we should be the first to stop self-justifying and the first to self-indict when necessary. Our prejudice and biases are so natural that repenting of them is a lifelong project. And what he's talking about is our political sides that we take over Christ in the kingdom. And, and so what is the answer? We, the answer is we are to approach politics with humility. We are to trust in God and to guard against placing our hope in political solutions and leaders that along with all things will pass away. They will all pass away. Let us look to Christ and his kingdom, which is an everlasting kingdom. And so we should be praying for Christ's kingdom to come. His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May we be known as a people who have humbled ourselves under the hand of God and are trusting in him and so that we are mouthpieces for the gospel and not just mouthpieces for a political ideology that will pass away. Jesus Christ, you see, is Lord over every tribe, tongue, and nation. Not just this nation. And so let us trust in Christ. And when we trust in political leaders, when we trust in political solutions uh, or political sides, they will let us down. That's why the psalmist writes in Psalm 118, 8 through 9, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Let us take refuge in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So we've seen the, the sins of spiritual leaders. We've seen uh, the vain hope uh, where we often uh, place hope. What we're going to see finally in the last two verses, in verses 21 through 22, is how the Lord gives hope to his people. How the Lord gives hope to his people. In verse 22, it says, Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uz. But to you also the cup shall pass. You shall become drunk and strip yourself bare. And then he, down at the end of verse 22, he says, concerning the daughter of Edom, uh, he says, he, your inequity, he, he will punish, he will uncover your sins. And so what is, what is uh, the prophet getting at? He, he's saying basically that God's judgment uh, over sin that came to Judah will come to all people. If God judged his people for their sin, what will happen to the rest of the world? He will certainly judge them for their sin. Edom here represents a, a nation that was close uh, to Israel, but it represents really all nations. And, and so they, they rejoiced uh, in the downfall of uh, Judah. Uh, and, and so uh, he says, rejoice now, but your time is coming. Your time of judgment is coming where you will be exposed, you will be judged, 
and you will know the judgment of God. And, and so the first thing, how does the Lord give hope to his people? Uh, we can know that judgment comes, comes for all people. You'll either have your sin judged in light of the person and work of Jesus Christ on the cross, or you'll have your sin judged in light of the work of Christ the King when he comes again to judge the living and the dead and to give to each person according to his work. That judgment comes for all people. If you're a Christian, though, your judgment was placed upon Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian, then you still face the judgment of God for your sins. And this gives hope to his people to know that, that those who oppress us, who, those who, who fail us, those who lead us uh, into the deadly consequences of sin and brokenness, that they will, will be judged and all things uh, that have been made crooked will be made straight and the wrong will be righted in, under Jesus Christ. But secondly, the thing we see, see here is not only judgment will come for all people, which does bring hope, uh, but also that the punishment of God's people has come to an end. Look at verse 22. Uh, he says, The punishment of your inequity, O daughter of Zion, uh, that's the people of God uh, in Judah, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. And, and so here God tells them, he gives them hope by telling them that, that her punishment has come to an end, uh, that there is no more punishment coming. Rather, if there's no more punishment coming, then the next thing that's coming is restoration, uh, is redemption. And, and, and so he says there can be no more exile. And eventually, after 70 years, we know from the historical record uh, uh, what the Bible tells us in the, uh, that they returned from exile uh, and after 70 years and rebuilt the temple. And, and so God began to restore them uh, in there. But this word here, uh, here in verse 22, is actually a foreshadowing of not only their future restoration under exile, but it's also a future restoration uh, for all people, uh, as proclaimed in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 5. It says there, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem, and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her inequity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for a God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Here in Isaiah chapter 40, uh, God is calling Isaiah uh, to cry out to Jerusalem about her restoration. And in Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah has cried out about the people's restoration. And in this verse is a, is a verse, or in Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 5, is a verse quoted in the New Testament about one who cries in the wilderness, preparing the way of the Lord. And we know that to be John the Baptist, who prepared the way of our Lord and King, Jesus Christ. This last verse then, verse 22 here, is a glimmer of hope for the people of God who have just been devastated by God's punishment for their sin. A hope that will be partially 
fulfilled in the return from exile, but it's ultimately fulfilled as seen in the person and work of Jesus Christ. For Jesus is the true prophet who revealed the word of God to us. He is the word. And Jesus is truth. And Jesus is the true priest. He's holy in all his ways, and because of that, he's our mediator between God and man. And Jesus Christ is the true servant king who will overcome his enemies and who served his people by laying his life down for them on the cross and taking it up again. And so because of what Jesus Christ is and because of what he has done, that he can use our brokenness from our sin and give us hope in this life. You see, sin is devastating. We see that from lamentations. We see that from our own lives. We see that in the world around us. It brings alienation between us and God. It brings an alienation between people. It even brings alienation uh, among, our, uh, among us individually. And it brings the judgment of God and, and brokenness that comes from that sin. But, dear ones, I, I, I want you to see, because of the word of God here this morning, I want you to see that our brokenness can be a mercy from God. Because as God brings judgment, he also always brings salvation and restoration. They go hand in hand. But also, our brokenness from our sin is our hope because it shows us our need and our dependence on God. Our need is for Jesus Christ, who died for our sin and he rose from the dead to give us life. And he doesn't just give us eternal life that is in the future, but he gives us life today that we might live lives pleasing to God, that we might stand firm in the hope uh, we have in Jesus Christ. So I want you to listen again with the words that I started off with the sermon from the Apostle Paul from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. He says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Now, if you're like me, you would have thought that no one like the Apostle Paul would ever write those words, right? Because there's Jesus and there's the Apostle Paul, right? It's kind of how we tend to view it. But here the Apostle Paul, even in the midst of affliction, in the, in the midst of, uh, of suffering, he even was burdened beyond strength and despaired of life itself. He even felt that he had received the sentence of death by the things he experienced. But the thing about the Apostle Paul, he knew where to turn, he knew where to go and listen to what he says, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a per deadly pearl, peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. 
Do you, want, do you believe that? That God raises the dead? That he gives life to that and calls into things that don't even exist as if they do exist? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is your hope and that he will deliver you again and again no matter what you face in this life? You see, the new, good news is that Jesus can, and he will, and he desires to heal our brokenness and use our brokenness from sin. And so God uh, has provided through him a better way to live in this world and to please God. And, and the, the paradox of that is that God wants to use our brokenness to carry out his plan of redemption. How does he do that? How does he do that? Well, let's turn back to Psalm 51. There we hear the words of King David, who was broken by his sin. And here's what he writes in verses 16 through 17. He says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. How does God use our brokenness? When we come to him in a broken and contrite heart, right? He uses that to proclaim his good news to the world, to glorify his son, Jesus Christ, that he uses it uh, to have, uh, as when we depend on him in our brokenness, he pours out his grace and mercy in our lives, uh, more grace and mercy than we can even begin to think or ask or imagine. In fact, listen to the words of the Apostle Paul later on in chapter 12, verses 8 through 10. He says this concerning uh, uh, an affliction that he had. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, this affliction that he had. He said that it should leave me, but he said to me, this is the Lord speaking to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So, dear ones, Christ calls us to him today in our weaknesses, in our sorrows, in our afflictions, in our insults, in our calamities, to come to him and trust in him and hope in him because when we are weak in him, then we are strong. For our strength is no longer in man. Our strength is no longer in princes. But our strength is in the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Father, we pray that we would not trust in kingdoms, that we would not trust in being free from suffering or affliction or calamity, that we would not trust in political leaders, but that we would trust in your son, Jesus Christ, in him alone. 
that even in the midst of our sorrow, our affliction, our persecution, our despair, our calamity, in the midst of our weakness, when we are in Christ, we find strength, a supernatural strength to live in this world. And so, Father, turn our hearts to your Son, Jesus Christ. And if there be anyone here today who doesn't know your Son, Jesus Christ, open their eyes to see the truth and beauty of the gospel. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.